Would you do me a favor and just take this out of your bulletin? Uh, it says one small step on it. And really, it's talking about the January series, where we're going to go in January. I don't know about you, but I usually use January as a time of setting goals for the next year. And um, sometimes it's a physical goal to uh, get exercise a certain amount of times during a week or, uh, you know, read through the Bible or, you know, just some other goals. You know what I'm talking about. You probably all have those goals, right? Do you have goals like that? Or am I just talking to myself? Um, but uh, what we want to do is we want to talk about, um, we want to start January and say, let's just do a, l- a little assessment of our lives. We find ourselves really just living for ourselves or are we living for others? Have we, have we really given ourselves to him? Are we living a life that's going to make a difference? Um, are we making a difference for the kingdom of God? And we're going to ask some of those questions and maybe give some practical steps at every message of how can we take this message and do two or three practical things. That, because what I'm finding out is sometimes we set these lofty goals and we don't reach them. And the reason we don't reach them is because we become overwhelmed because it's like we're, we're sitting there we're saying, well, the mountain's way up there and I'm way down here. I'll never get there. But you only get there one step at a time. And Here's, here's what we want to do. We want to just give you small steps and say, if you do these small steps, it'll make a huge difference. And by the, by the end of the year, you'll achieve some of those goals. One of those things we did this year, you may not have known that, but this year we challenge you to take the Bible every day and to read and reflect daily. We said, even if you don't do it every day, if you do it twice a week, three times a week, that's better than doing it none times a week, you know? None times a week. Edit that in the thing. That's not good grammar. Um, Edit just what I said about the bad grammar, too. And now edit what I just said about, you know. You get but my point is, you get to the point where you really realize that if I'm doing this a couple times a week, I've done it the whole year, and now I've done something I haven't done the whole year uh, before. And so that's a good thing. So we want to challenge you to set some spiritual goals. And maybe it's just to live for others. Maybe it's to look out for the needs of others more. Maybe it's to say, you know, I don't know if I've fully given my life to Christ. And here's some steps on how I can do that. Maybe it's, I want my life to leave, I want to leave a legacy. I want to do something that's going to make a difference in other people's lives for the rest of eternity. And how do I do that? What steps can I take? So we're going to talk about some practical things you can do. And that's what the series is about. I want to tell you something that's really interesting. And I heard this a, a while ago. If you spend an hour a day, think about this. If you spend an hour a day, every day, for the next five years, you will become an expert in that pursuit. Whether it's playing an instrument, learning a language, becoming... If you spend an hour a day, every day, for the next five years, the end of five years, you will be an expert in that area of pursuit. But, see, here's the, here's the deal. You've got to take the time on a regular basis. It's those small steps that lead to those big uh, changes in your life. So we're going to talk a little bit about that in January. I just wanted to let you know that. Now, we're finishing up this series of Eat This Book. We're in the book of 1 Peter. We've been going through the Bible. Our reading this weekend is we'll find ourselves in 1 Peter. Then in the next two weeks, we're going to be in the book of Revelation. And by the way, just a little thing that annoys me. It's not revelations, plural. It's the book of Revelation, okay? And that's just a little annoyance. So if you come up to me and you say revelations, I won't make fun of you. 
in front of you, but I will behind your back. Because actually, that's the Christian way to do it. Okay? Just in case you weren't... You may be a new Christian, and you just need to know a few things. That's a great, actually, that's a great sermon. New Christians, what you need to know. You never talk bad about people in front of them. Always do it behind their back. Yeah. <laughs> Taking notes? <laughs> I got about 20 points here. <laughs> no. All right, so we're in First Peter, because uh, that's where we're reading. And I want to just give you a little historical background of Peter. Peter's writing to Christians, probably Roman Christians, and they're undergoing persecution, probably through Nero, who's putting the screws down on Christians. And it's not a good time to live if you're a Christian, because Christians give their allegiance to Christ, not to Caesar. And so it's not a good time. And he encourages them to persevere in spite of pain. Um, the theme of the of First Peter is that you can experience God's grace even in the midst of suffering. That God and His grace will really become real in your life during the time of suffering. So here's how the book breaks down. First, he identifies who the people of God are. He gives word pictures and descriptors of who the people of God are. They have a precious salvation, he talks about. They have been given a new way of life. They are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. So there's, a, there's this, it's not an individual thing. It's talking about how we're a group thing. There's a, we're a royal priesthood. We're a, a holy nation. We're a people of God's own possession. And these are all how we are in community. And, and I know we live in this American individualistic society. I do my own thing. I'm my own boss. You know, I, I make my own decisions. I don't need a community. I don't need anybody. I don't need uh, accountability. And all that. I get that. I get that's part of our pop culture. But Christianity says there's, there's, there's a need for community. There's a need for uh, being together with others. Uh, so in the second part of the letter, Peter talks about the responsibility of God's people. He says, here's what you're going to, what's going to happen when you're living in this world. Uh, you're going to, uh, you need to abstain from sin. You need to live good lives before non-Christians. You need to suffer for righteousness. Uh, righteousness sake and you need to actively do good that so he's and we're going to be in that section today so that's where we're going to focus and then finally he talks about the responsibility of the church in the midst of trials and he basically says we have a responsibility as a christian community in the midst of trials how we're to treat one another and how we're to support one another as we go through those fiery trials now, Peter gives us four pictures of what it means to be a Christian in this world. And that's what we're going to look at. How should we live in this world that we find ourselves? And, and as he does this, we're going to see that he gives us a different aspect. And sometimes these, these pictures he gives us are almost, they seem like they're contradictory, like they go against each other. But you'll see as we go that they're really important. And it may be that just one of these areas is the only area that is really going to speak to your heart. The Spirit of God is going to take one area and say, yeah, that's the area that God needs to work in my life. It, you don't try to think, oh, I'm going to do all four. Again, small steps. What is the one thing that God wants you to take away today? So we'll look at that, and hopefully you'll find one of those things that God says, hey, I really want to work in this area of your life. This is the room of your life that I want to get into. We want to clean this out and work on this a little bit. So maybe this will uh, help you with that uh, cleaning process or incur, uh, changing process. First Peter 2, verse 11. 
Because the first thing that Peter says is that we are foreign settlers. Notice what he says. He says, dear friends, I warn you uh, as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly lusts that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. And so what he's saying here is aliens and strangers or as temporary residents and foreigners, we need to fight sinful desires. So what does it mean to be an alien and a stranger or a temporary residence? Peter uses this Greek word. He uses this Greek word. It's called parapidomos. And it's the word for a resident alien. And a resident alien is somebody who lives in a country, but that's not their home. That's not their mother country. That's not their homeland. Uh, They're living in a foreign, in a foreign place, a foreign nation, but they're, they're, uh, and they're not a tourist because it's not a short-term thing. It's a long-term thing, but it's not forever. So in other words, they have a residence in this foreign land, but it's not a permanent residence, and it's not a temporary residence in the sense that it's there if you're just going to go visit. You're going to live, live there. You're going to put roots down there. You're going to make a difference in that. And so that's the word he's using here. It's a kind of an interesting thing. So he says you're a foreign settler. You are in this land, but you don't belong here. Because your residence is in heaven. The Bible says that we're, we're ambassadors for Christ. We're ambassadors for Christ. And you think about what an ambassador does. A good ambassador, let's say we have an American ambassador and he, he's, he's in an, a foreign land. His job is to represent his foreign, his, his homeland, his mother country. His, his, his job is to represent their value, their politics, their, their beliefs. He's, he's to be the spokesman for his country. He's supposed to be a, a representation of his country. And, and essentially, that's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying that we're living in this world, but it's not our final resting place. It's not where we live. We have a home that's not here. It's in heaven, and that's where we're supposed to live. Uh, where to be? And you know, we have all sorts of politics in America. We have the left, we have the right, we have the Tea Party, we have, we have people all over the place. And, and everybody gets in a tizzy about that, and everybody gets concerned. And I just want to say to you, as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you should be concerned about the politics of heaven. You should be concerned about the ethics of heaven. And that's what ought to drive everything. You know, everybody says, well, I, I was born a, 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 a Democrat or I was born a Republican and my family's always been Republican. That's great, whatever. But the bottom line is, if you're born again, you have a politics of another world, another land. And that has to come into play in your life. And so Peter calls Christians to live in the midst of a pagan society in such a way, in such a way that as you live your life, your good deeds will bring them to praise God. Now, think about this. We, sh- we live in a world, and, and this is what happens. If we're truly, and, and really, we, the phrase that Scripture uses is to be in the world but not of it. To be in the world but not of it. Now, this is a hard thing to do because you're kind of walking a line here. But here's what will happen. If you're doing it right, you're going to have two reactions, and they're polar opposites. The one reaction is people will be appalled. They will be turned off. They will be hostile towards you. Why? Because you represent an ethic that goes against this pop culture. 
You represent an ethic that says, I don't do that. I don't talk that way. I don't behave that way. I don't treat people that way. I won't go in for that. I can't, I can't do that. It's unethical for me to do that. And people will be hostile for you. Have you ever had somebody say to you, oh, you think you're so, you think you're so good. You think, oh, you're so, you know, you're just goody two-shoes, aren't you, you know? And all you're doing is saying, hey, I'm just not stealing, <laughs> okay? I just don't believe that God wants me to steal. <laughs> That's sorry. I don't believe God wants me to just totally have just a potty mouth. I'm sorry. I just can't go along with that. I'm sorry. And immediately there's a hostility. Why? Because they, they just hate what you stand for. That's one of the responses. If you're walking the line of the gospel, that's one of the responses. The other response is the opposite. They'll be attracted. They'll say, you've got something I don't have. You've got hope. I don't have hope. You've got joy. I don't have joy. And your life's not easy, but you still have joy. You rise above the, 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 the struggles in your life. I don't know how you do it. Your life's not easy, but you still you have a good attitude. You have purpose in your life. I don't have any purpose. I don't know why I'm here and why I'm living. So there's that polar opposite. There's this, this, this hostility, but there's this attraction. And if you're walking the line right, if you are walking the line right as a follower of Jesus Christ, you will, you will have both of those reactions with people. So Peter says basically... You know, you need to understand that your citizenship is in heaven. It, ain't, it is not here on earth. And, and you need to walk that line, and, and this is what you're going to have. Some people are just going to reject you, and they're going to be repelled by you, and other people are going to say, you know, there's something about... And, and by the way, it may be the same person. They may want, in one moment reject you, and the next moment say, but I wish I had what you had. You know, it's like, okay, that's kind of hard to put together, but it is. The second, thing, the second thing he says here is he says not only to walk the line, but we're to fight off these sinful desires. Now, this word for sin, sinful desires is this. It's kind of an over-desire. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like God gives us these desires, the desire to be a good parent, the desire to excel at work, the desire to excel in a pursuit, whether it's as an athlete or as a, a musician or something like that. But here's what happens. We take these good desires and we make them over desires. We make them ultimate desires. We, we take a good thing and we take it too far. And we say, not only do I want to be a good musician, I want to be the best musician so that I'll feel good about who I am because look at what I can do. Or I, I don't want to just be a parent. I want to be the best parent because I want my kids to grow up and look at me and say, look into my eyes and say, mom and dad, I just want to tell you just how great parents are. There's been no greater parents than you. Well, you're living in a dream world if you think that's going to happen. That's number one. But, you know, I mean, the bottom line is, and so you pour your life into these kids, and one day they walk, their first day of school, they walk, they get on the bus, and they look at you, and they say, I hate you. I was there. I saw it. He was saying it to Carol, my wife. And I said, whoa, that's weird. <laughs> and you know what? Here's what's going to happen. If you take a good desire, I want to be a good mom, and you make it an ultimate desire, your kids are going to grow up, and they're not going to give you what you want. They're not going to affirm you and say, hey, mom, I just want to tell you, you're the best, and I love you every day, and I'm going to come back at 4 o'clock and tell you the same thing so you'll feel good about yourself. It ain't going to happen. I, I'm sorry. Unless you got different kids than me, it ain't going to happen. 
You'll be lucky sometimes if they just say thank you. I mean, buckle up when they get through the teenage years. But here's what I'm saying to you. I'm saying if you put all, if you make a good desire an ultimate desire, you're going to come to a place and you're going to say, this is, I'm trying to find my identity. I'm trying to find my, my value. I'm trying to find everything in this. And guess what? It's not working. It could be a marriage. It could be a relationship. It could say, I want to be married. I want to be with somebody. If I just have that. And then you get in that relationship. You go, what did I just do? See, Peter says, don't let those desires become over-desires because they'll consume you. And, and how do you get away from that? You get away from that and you say, I need to realize where I belong. I'm living here, yes, but I'm a temporary resident here. And we need to remind ourselves of our final residence. And when we do that, we loosen our grip on this world. We don't ask this world to give us what it can't give us. We don't ask other people to give us what they can't give us. We begin to look at how we can serve others. You say, I am so loved and served by God. I have something to give to others. We begin to leverage our resources for his kingdom. You say, you know what? It's not all about me. and It's not all about spending everything I have on me. There's other things for his kingdom that I'm supposed to do here. He's put me in a strategic place to use my resources for his kingdom. How am I doing on that? And we do that by setting our minds on the things above. Our eternal residence. Um, and he says this. He says, when you do that, when you walk that line, and when you b- begin to see who you are, and you don't make these desires, good, good desires that God give you, over desires, people around you, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, people you love and care about, say, you know, something's going on in I think God is really working in your life. They, get, they won't give glory to you. They'll give glory to God. And essentially, that's what Matthew says. Uh, Jesus said this in Matthew. He says, you are the light of the world, a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your deeds, your good deeds, shine out for all to see. So that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So the first thing that Peter says is you're living, you need to live, you need to picture yourself. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need yourself, you see, you're a citizen of heaven, but you're living in a foreign land. You're not, of a, you're not a tourist here. You have to engage in this world. You have to live in this world, but not be of it. You have to be a light in this world, and you have to not allow the things of this world to pull you to a point that you become so entangled and so enamored in it, the light goes out. And when you do that, some people are just going to reject you. And yet, if you walk that line right, that's part of the thing. But there'll be a part where they'll say, you know, you got something I don't have and I want it. The second thing Peter says is that we're freed slaves. Notice he says this in verse 15. He says, it's God's will that that your honorable life should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. What he's saying here is, as free slaves, we are to serve our new master. Peter tells us that Christians are freed slaves. That's essentially what Peter's saying. Paul says the same thing. He says in Romans 6, he says, you were slaves to sin, but now you are free from the power of sin and have become, now this is what Paul says, you have, you're free from the power of sin, but you become slaves 
to God. Now, here's where I think many Christians fall down. And, and I think, I can't speak for other countries and other cultures, but I can speak for the American culture because I see it all the time. I see it in my life, and I see it in the lives of other people. We think that freedom means I no longer am a slave to sin, which means I am free to do whatever I want. I'm free to live my life. I'm free to not to be, I don't have to be connected to a local community. I don't have to have accountability. I am my own boss. I am my own master. I am my own Lord. That is so steeped in our American pop culture, and we pick it up almost as though, thus saith the Lord. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says we've been set free from one master to be connected to another master. Now, this is really important to understand. Some people have said this. They, and if you understand the grace, this is, this is one of the conclusions you come to. It's the wrong one, but this is a conclusion you come to. You can say, okay, I've been set free from sin. That means that it doesn't really matter how I live because I'm forgiven. So I can go out and sin because if I sin, I just have to ask Jesus to forgive me, and he has to. That's what the Bible says, that he forgives me when I ask. So some of you, I know that, well, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't make that judgment. I, it may be that some of you have had an attitude in the past where you've premeditated sin based upon a, a, a forgiveness that you think is going to come. In other words, you say, it's okay for me to sin because I know all I have to do is confess it after all. So it's like when you're a kid, you say, well, I know I'm going to get punished. But if punishment is not really so bad that I get, get, get this, whatever, stealing a cookie or whatever it is. The worst thing that could happen is I'll get caught and I'll get punished. Well, we say as a Christian, well, the worst thing that could happen if I sin is I'll just have to ask him for forgiveness. So I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. Now, you're, the, the good news is you're understanding grace if you ha- understand it's all on grace. The bad thing is you don't understand grace. Because <laughs> Paul says this in Romans 6. He says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Paul's answer is, of course not. And he uses, I think, the, the, the strong Greek, ume, which means no, heaven forbid. He says, since we died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? What Paul is saying as he goes down through the chapter, he basically is saying this. If you have that attitude, you don't understand grace because grace doesn't bring you to a place of saying, now I can sin because I'm forgiven. It says, now I don't want to sin because I'm forgiven. I understand what, he, what it costs for my forgiveness. How could I ever go and sin again knowing what it costs Christ, His very life? I can't bring myself to that place. And that's what Paul says. Basically, what, what, what Peter and Paul are, are essentially are saying here is this. We were slaves to sin. Christ through the cross set us free from the power and the reign of sin. And we've been set free to a new master. But we will never rise to to our full potential, to what God designed us to be, until we connect to our new master. Now, here's here's the problem we have. We don't do that. See, the paradox is this. We are born a slave, but through the cross, Jesus set us free. He set us free from sin. But we only find our true freedom when we submit ourselves to the slavery of God. 
to when we become slaves of God, slaves of Jesus, servants of Jesus. We, you know, we, we soften it. We say servants. No, the word is a slave. We're called to be slaves of Jesus. He has ownership over us. We are his slaves. We are his servants. We are called. And you say, well, I don't like that language. Well, you might not. Let me give you an illustration, because this is where I think a lot of us struggle in the Christian life. <clears throat> when I was a kid, you probably did this too. We used to fly kites. I could never do the box kite. They never flew, and they were, they were junk. I, if you did them, good for you. You know, I don't want to hear about how yours went, because mine didn't. <laughs> but we do these kites. We did the old ones where you did, you know, the, the, the paper, and you run the string through them, and you put the bow on it, and then you get the sheet uh, from the bed and tear it up into strips, and make a tail and explain to your mom that you didn't know where the sheet went and stuff like that. But you go out and you'd, you'd send your kite up, right? And you send it to the end of the roller until it like was a small dot up there and you go, wow, that's really cool. And then you go, okay, so now what do we do? Well, let's, let's make it go further. So you get another roll of string and you tie it on there and you let it go out there. And you know what happens? What happens? Rope breaks. Right? And then the kite goes, boom! It goes like really high. No, it doesn't do that. Last time I checked, what happens is, well, every time it happened to me, the kite went like this. Here it is with the kites when it's tight, and then the, bre- the, the string breaks, and the kite goes... <laughs> it's like five miles away, so forget it. I'm never going to find that kite again. So you say, okay, I lost the kite. But it's, it's never going to soar. It's, gonna, gonna, it's just going to go like this. And I just want to tell you that many Christians are going like this right now. You're going like this because you say, I don't want to tether myself to Jesus. I just want to tell you, that's like saying as a kite, I don't want to tether myself to somebody, a Lord, who's going to hold me back. And I'm just telling you, He won't hold you back. He will hold you up. You will never soar until you're connected and tethered to Jesus. It's never going to happen. And some of you are going like this in your life. You see, I wonder why I'm not soaring. Because you won't tether yourself to Him. And what Peter is saying is really an important principle. He says, you have been set free from sin, but you have been set free to become a slave to Christ. And when you become a slave to Christ and you tether your life to Christ, it's the only way you can soar. That's contrary to what the world tells us. The world says, if you want to soar, you got to be on your own. That's like telling a kite, go fly, fly, throw it up in the air, fly. It doesn't work. Here's the third picture he gives us. We are to be faithful sufferers. He says this in verse 19, God is pleased with you when you do what you know is right and patiently endure unfair treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. So he's saying is, if you suffer for doing good, God is pleased. Now, I just want to say, for me, probably, no, not probably, absolutely, the greatest suffering, the greatest frustration, the greatest problems that I have ever had have to do with my mistakes, my poor judgments, my poor words, whatever the words were or what I said, what I did, and it caused suffering for me. Many times I've suffered and it had nothing to do with God. It had everything to do with me. 
Now, there have been times where I've suffered that I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't say anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong, but I suffered. And what Peter's saying is, you know, the first ones where you suffered because you said something or did something wrong, you made a poor judgment, that's on you. Don't blame God for that. You know, I talk to Christians and they say, well, I made a bad, you know, they don't even say I made a, I made a choice and it was, you know, (laughs) you don't want to point out, oh, well, that was actually is pointed out in scripture. You knew that and you went ahead and did it. Again, this whole grace, I can sin and he'll forgive me. And now my life's not going well. And oh, I just, I just, I'm suffering for Christ. And I'm thinking, no, you're not suffering for Christ. You're suffering because you're an idiot. (laughs) Don't. Don't put that on Jesus. You're, you're suffering because you made poor choices, not because you're suffering for Christ. There have been times where I've just suffered because I'm an idiot and I've made a stupid choice. I've said something dumb or I did something dumb and I'm paying the consequences. Peter says, let's cut it straight here. But there are times where you will suffer. If you follow Christ, you will suffer and you will suffer because you are living the life. You are being passed over. You are being overlooked. You are maybe being outrightly ostracized. He's saying this. Suffering is a major part of the Christian life. It's not if, it's when. Everyone will suffer if you live for Christ. Now, we live in a free country where there's very little outright persecution and suffering. But look at the examples in the Bible. Look at Job. Job suffered. The Old Testament prophets suffered. John the Baptist suffered. How did he end, John the Baptist? He was the forerunner of Jesus, the forerunner of the Messiah. How did he end? His head chopped off. How about uh, Jesus? Well, we know how he he ended. He suffered. And essentially, that's what Peter says. Jesus is our example. Follow him. You're going to suffer. His disciples, we, we know most of his disciples, if not all of them, were executed. Uh, Paul was executed. Peter, legend has it, Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't feel uh, worthy to be crucified the way his Lord was. John the Baptist, or excuse me, John the Apostle, we're going to look at Revelation next week. John uh, was left on an island. Uh, 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 Christianity is uh, filled with suffering. And here's what Christianity says. It doesn't say you won't suffer. And by the way, it doesn't say that when you're suffering, God is punishing you. Let me just say this. God poured out his wrath and his punishment on his son, Jesus. Jesus has already suffered and was punished for you. He took the curse and the weight of your sin for you. So that's that, you know, now you, can, you can, if you make a bad choice, you can suffer for that. But ultimately, God isn't judging and, and coming down with suffering for you. You may go through suffering, and it has nothing to do, because I, I talk to people all the time, and they say, Pastor, I don't know why we're going through so much suffering and pain right now. And I think, well, Jesus did, Job did, everybody did. And it tells us that we're going to, this is part of the lot that we live in. This is, but here's what Christianity does. Christianity says your suffering isn't for naught. There is a purpose behind it. And, and, and I came across this quote by Tim Keller, and I really love it because it really sets apart Christianity from other faiths. And it says this, he says this, Christianity teaches that contrary to fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contrary to Buddhism, suffering is real. Contrary to karma, suffering is often unfair. But contrary to secularism, 
Suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a deep nail into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. In other words, what he's saying and what Peter is saying is suffering is an inevitable part of following Jesus. Here's the last thing he says to us, that we are forgiven sinners. Notice verse 22. He never sinned, speaking of Jesus. He never deceived anyone. Nor did he retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and to live to what is right. By his wounds you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. And what he's saying here is as as sinners, Jesus is our only hope of forgiveness. You know, forgiveness is costly. It's not free. Whenever there's an offense, whenever there's a, 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 somebody says or does something that hurts you, you, you there's an offense. There's a, a, there's a, it, the only way it could be made right is the party, the one who offended or the one who has been offended, somebody has to pay the price. And so maybe the offending party comes and says, you know, I said these things and I'm sorry. But, you know, think about that. If the offender basically has slandered you, and they come back and they say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have put that on Facebook. I shouldn't have put that on Twitter. I shouldn't have uh, posted that on, on the Internet. Uh, you, you, but I'm sorry and, and forgive me. And you, you, you say, well, that's nice that you forgave me, but that's already out there. And I'll never get that back. I'll, ne- I'll never be able to, to go out there and to give my side and to bring you know, balance to that. I'll never be able to do that. So what do you do there? You basically have to take the hit. You basically have to say, you know what? I'm not going to allow that to destroy my life. I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to move on. I'm going to accept that apology. Maybe you won't even get that apology. But there's a point where there, when there's an offense, somebody has to take the hit. Somebody has to pay the price. And here's the thing. We've all sinned, and there is a price to our sin. And somebody has to pay for it. And guess what? We can't. And that's why Christ came. That's why God sent his son. That's why Jesus was born as a baby. That's why his name was Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. All of that came together because there was an offense that had to be paid. Many offenses. And what he says here is that Jesus bore the weight of our sin on the cross. He bore the burden. He bore the cost. He paid the price. You know, our, for, our forgiveness cost Jesus his life. And Jesus goes on in a psalm and he says, Jesus suffered for us. He died for us. He became a sacrifice for us. He carried our sins on the cross. By his wounds, we are healed. Once we were sheep or wandered without a master or without a shepherd. But now we've been brought into his fold. We are, he is our guardian, the guardian of our souls. So there's two applications I want to give you and we'll close with these. Number one, will you like Jesus accept God's righteous judgment? It says that he left his case in the hands of God. Now, here's what it comes down to. They were, they were cursing him. They were mocking him. They were calling out all sorts of things. And instead, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are saying. He let, the fa- he let this Father in heaven handle justice. I just want to say to you, you may have hard feelings towards somebody that you want to get revenge. They've done something. They've said something. You want to get revenge. You, want to make, you feel like you're the one that can even the, uh, make it right. So they hurt me, I'll hurt them. I'll get revenge. And the Bible says, if you go down that path, 
as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are going down a path that will only hurt you. You need to let go of it. You need to say, God, this is in your hands. I can't carry that anymore. It is yours. I will allow you to handle the justice on that. Revenge belongs to you. Justice belongs to you. Here's the second. So Jesus is our example of forgiveness. If you can't forgive somebody, if you can't overlook an offense, you have to go back to the cross and say, but he overlooked my offense. And that's the example to follow. It's not whether the person deserves it, because frankly, we didn't deserve it. So it has nothing to do with, well, if they come to me, I'll forget. No, no, no. We, we didn't come to him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's get it straight. The bottom line is forgiveness isn't about whether they come, whether they come you know, on their hands and knees begging for forgiveness, whether they even come. It, it's a matter of saying, it really comes down to this. In essence, forgiveness really comes down to this. Am I going to carry that burden? Am I going to carry that pain, that hatred, that that desire to get revenge, that, that anger that is within our bones? Am I going to allow, allow it to grow up into a root of bitterness? Or am I going to release it and say, God, it's yours. You judge it. You take it. Here's the second thing. We'll close with this. Will you, because of Jesus, ask for God's complete forgiveness? It says he personally carried our sins uh, in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin uh, and live for what is right. Jesus is the basis of our forgiveness. And on the cross, Jesus did the heavy living, lifting. He, he bore the burden of our sin. He took the curse. Uh, he took the full weight of our sins, and he took the curse that went along with him. It says that we were strange sheep, that we were wandering, and we were in desperate need of a shepherd. And Jesus came and provided the way back to the sheepfold. Uh, when we are, we are brought back, we find our purpose, we find our family, we find our great shepherd. And I just want to say to you, I remember when I was about 18 years old and I had gone to confession my whole life and I never really felt forgiven. I always walked out and said, well, was I sincere? Did I get to all the sins? Did I really confess everything? And for the first time in my life when I came to understand who Jesus was, I didn't have to convince me I was a sinner. I, I still believed in God. I always believed in God, I think. I always believed in Jesus. I knew who he was as a savior, but I had never seen that he needed, I needed a savior that he died on the cross for me. And so I, I said, Jesus, I realize I'm a sinner and I realize that you're my only hope and I need your forgiveness. I need, because I can't, I can't carry the burden anymore. I feel like I'm carrying this burden. And, and when I asked Jesus to come into my life, the one thing I did feel immediately, for the first time in my life, I felt forgiven because I had stopped carrying the burden and I had given it to Jesus. And I felt forgiven for the first time. And maybe you're here and you're still carrying the burden. You're trying to be good enough. You're trying to live a good life. You're trying to do all the right things. You're trying to, and I just want to tell you, drop it, drop it, drop it, drop the burden and allow Jesus, when he says his last words on the cross, it is finished. Would you drop the burden today and allow Jesus to be the one who bore your sins, did all the heavy lifting, took the curse for you so that you could be free? Would you stand and pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we are citizens of heaven, though we are living in this world. Help us to remain in the world, but not of it. Help us to walk that fine line. Father, thank you that we were once slaves to sin, but now we've been set free. Not set free to live any way we want, but to be tethered to you so that we can soar. Thank you, Father, that uh, life 
will bring, if we follow you, suffering. Help us to suffer following our example, Jesus. And Father, I pray that we would understand the forgiveness that can only come through Jesus. That if there's anyone here who's trying to carry the burden themselves, they would release it at the cross and find the forgiveness and freedom that only Jesus can give. Thank you for these words from Peter. Help us to take them through your spirit. And I pray that you'd apply them to our hearts so that we can live the right way as your ambassadors in this world. For your glory and your kingdom, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.